Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. In this episode, you'll hear none of those. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 143 for November of 2015. One week before New Horizons had its flyby of Pluto on July 14, 2015, I sat down with some of my fellow early career scientists and I asked them what it's like to be involved with NASA's New Horizons mission to the Pluto-Charon system. We talked for over an hour, but I've edited it down to just a half a second under one hour for the main interview portion. Because there were so many of us, the audio quality isn't stupendous, and someone, it wasn't me, was banging on the table a lot, but I think that you'll enjoy the discussion nonetheless. And before I actually get to the interview part, if you stay until after the outro music, there are about three minutes of outtakes, something that I've only done on one other episode. I'm sitting here at the Applied Physics Lab in Maryland with a few other relatively early career scientists. We are one week away from the New Horizons' closest approach with the Pluto system, and six people have volunteered their time to talk with us for a bit about what it's like to be on the mission. So for the first part, let's just sort of go around the room and everyone introduce themselves. Um, Name which of the four science theme teams you're on and a little bit about what you do. So Veronica or Kelsey? I can go. Uh, I'm Kelsey Singer. I'm on the geology and geophysics theme team. And I kind of have two roles. I help with um, observations that we're planning and trying to figure out which part of Pluto we're looking at um, and getting this information back to the scientists. And then I also do science. So um, we've done a lot of predictive modeling, getting ready for the observations. So say we see a certain kind of geologic feature, um, we'll have a code ready to look at what kind of process may have made that feature. I am Jason Cook. I am on the comp. I'm on the comp team, the composition team. Uh, I, most of my data comes from the LISA instrument, that is the near infrared spectrograph uh, on on board New Horizons. It'll um, basically uh, hammer Pluto and Charon with uh, lots and lots of spectra, which will give us all the information we want to know about its surface ever. My name is Carly Howitt. I am also on the composition team, and I was. Uh, involved in an instrument level to calibrate one of the instruments um, on board of that um, of New Horizons. And the other thing is I'm, I'm interested in surface, surfaces and surface processing. So I'll be looking at how uh, the information that's returned with the RALF instrument, t- what, what that tells us about the surfaces. Ralph is both Envic and Lisa. I'm more interested in Envic, which is um, it's kind of the color, the, the color eyes of the New Horizons spacecraft. Hi, I'm Amanda Zangari, and I'm on the GGI team. And uh, so what I do is I create products to help the con- team conceptual- conceptualize what data are being taken. Um, I also help to unify observations um, from previous Pluto measurements, make sure everything is on the same page and the correct areas of Pluto have been compared to what was taken in the past. And I've also been analyzing some of the earlier science images that came out in the winter and spring. My name is Orkan Umarhan. I'm also on the geology and geophysics uh, team. And uh, my role is, I'm kind of like the 
roving applied mathematician and <laughs> physicist. So I help a lot with the uh, folks on our team with the physics uh, interpretation. And I've been helping out also with a little bit of image analysis and, and, and the such. And uh, most of my work will begin after the close encounter because I'm mostly involved with a lot of landform evolution modeling. So I'm interested in the, uh, we will be with a couple other people working on trying to make sense of the physical processes that we observe to be going on, at least remnants of them. So I talk to, eventually be talking to a lot of people from all the various teams and putting together a picture afterwards. I'm Veronica Bray, I'm with the Geology and Geophysics Imaging Team. Uh, my role is in image analysis, so looking specifically for impact craters on the surface caused by comet uh, impact um, and trying to work out why they look like they do. Uh, I'll also be joining in with some crater counting so that we can work out exactly how old uh, Pluto is based on how many things have hit it in the past. Uh, and listeners, I think, generally know what I do, but I'll, for completeness sake, uh, I'm also on the geology, geophysics, imaging team, and uh, I'm your host. <laughs> and um, I've been involved in a lot with the planning, with the communication between the sequencers and the scientists. And in terms of science stuff, uh, I will also be doing craters, along with Kelsey and Veronica, looking at the crater population uh, to interpret the resurfacing history and also the impact history, because we don't really know what's hit Pluto in the past, because we don't know the size distribution very well of Kuiper Belt objects. So that's uh, something I will be working on. So uh, we're going to get right into actually a listener question. So Robert wanted to know what our average day is like. How many hours, what we do, is it all spent behind a computer? Uh, are we by ourselves or in meetings? Do we have an overseer who whips us when we're bad and praises us when we're good? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, since, and, yeah, since we all do lots of different things, um, I want to focus on the New Horizons aspect in particular. So, um, but not necessarily since we've just been here at LPL, because I know a few of us only got in two days ago. So since you've been working on New Horizons stuff, what's been your, your average kind of day? Especially New Horizons stuff in the last month or two, perhaps, as we've been gearing up for closest approach. I could talk about what we're doing here. <laughs> Go for it. Um, so now that we're all here, um, we all get in every morning at 8 o'clock, and we have this thing called the Science Plenary, where uh, each of the theme team leads presents what we've learned in the past day or so, what data have come down, what each of the teams been, have been working on, so we can all have an idea of what's going on. Um, the press officer will say what news stories were being released, because a lot of the stuff we're doing, it takes a couple of days for it to just be checked, double-checked, and then the people write the news release, NASA looks at it, and it goes out. Um, and so we have no idea what's new or old until they tell us, and then they can cut that. Um, <laughs> no! You can leave that in, yeah, sure. No, no, it's new or old until, sorry, I just said that badly. There will be outtakes, I there will, think, there, this. <laughs> there will be outtakes, but yeah, just what's... It's, it's, we're, we're discovering so many things, it's really hard to keep track what's public and what's not yet. And that's the important thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to remind everyone... We're not uh, allowed to scoop NASA. And we're, well, we we're not discussing science during this uh, right. interview. Right. Yeah. So that well, new Horizon Science. Yes, New Horizons. <laughs> new New Horizon Science. New New Horizon Science. <laughs> I and, have... Uh, so Amanda, specifically, do you have a taskmaster who stands over you? 
Well, so our theme team, each theme team has a lead. Ours is Jeff Moore, um, and they've, we've had Bill McKinnon and John Spencer deputize. But really what they do is they're the facilitate. <laughs> they, they facilitate the, um, the GGI stuff, and they, they do other tasks. But really, it's like we're all at school sitting in a classroom with our laptops working just together in this one big room. And we're all working on our own stuff. But if I want to ask Mark Bowie or Mark Showalter or John Spencer or Bill McKinnon or any of the other really awesome people in the room, what should I be working on, or do, what do you think about this? You just kind of get up and go talk to them and say, hey, I've got a thing. And then you kind of go back and do your own stuff. And yeah, and the atmosphere is also very inclusive. Many of the folks, like John Spencer or Mark Bowie, they'll, something new will come up, and they'll immediately call a lot of, they, call a lot of us over to take a look at what they've got and openly discuss it. So there's always a lot of dialogue going on with respect to the uh, new things that are coming up. And so, and it's a very democratic environment in a lot of ways in terms of us expressing our opinions and, and being respectful of uh, our individual interpretations of many of the things that come up. So that part of the mission for me is uh, very inspiring. Like they see, like, like what you would expect to see in the movies. Yeah. Well, and, and what I like is that there is less of a meritocracy, almost, in the sense that it's not John, at least in GGI, it's not John or Jeff or Bill saying this is the answer. It's right. you know, what does everyone think, yeah. and it is very much a consensus kind of thing. And I expect we'll see a lot more of that yeah. over the next week or two, especially as, as we, those images become more right. resolved and more freakish features appear before our eyes. Right, a lot of us are going to be like, what the yeah, what is this that? thing? Where was North again? That's my job. <laughs> yeah, so actually, Amanda, one thing... One That's thing what I'm, Unify Observations with pl- previous Pluto measurements actually means. Yeah. Right, so Amanda is our tsarista, of, or tsarina, of, of uh, the coordinate system. I'm the pole police. Yes. She, she has a badge. She's the popo. I have a badge. She's the popo. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not allowed to wear APR because the security guards look at you funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, any anyone else? Come. Well, our our theme team lead is uh, Will Grundy from Lowell Observatory. Uh, he's been doing Pluto stuff for ages, Pluto Triton and KBO stuff. Since and they dep- were discovered, practically. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, and our our deputy is uh, Dale Crookshank from NASA Ames, and he is. The man who knows most about spectra, possibly ever. <laughs> He's got so many spectra stored in his brain. Like, I, I, I <laughs> he could look at anything and be like, "Oh no, that's the 1.64 micron feature of the little." And you already see that in sun in this temperature field, and you're like, "Where did that come from?" <laughs> it's all. In did his someone brain. check in, or is you're not pulling it out of his? <laughs> <laughs> out of his somewhere else than his brain. <laughs> Thing that I'd have to bleep out. <laughs> Considering that Dale discovered methane ice on Pluto, um, he's a pretty good source. We should probably believe him. Yeah, we should believe him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, as well as nitrogen, carbon so, monoxide. And I'd, I'd echo what was said before. I mean, I, I found that it's a very inclusive place to work. Usually, if someone discovers co- something cool, we're all huddled around that person's yeah. laptop trying to talk about it and understand it. Um, um, I think especially it's, when these new these new maps should come up, and yeah. uh, we put the color. You guys put the color on, and 
and we know <laughs> I can gawk at ooh color. <laughs> I wonder what color nitrogen looks like. Uh, <laughs> you can't see that. And so there's always some. I mean, people think of science as being exact, but it, it's really it's really not to some extent. There's always an error of interpretation and in what we're seeing, and so and it's nice that that's done in a democratic way because um, it, it is interpretive, and so just because one person thinks it doesn't make it right. You've got Todd's maps, you've got John's maps, yeah. or I guess Todd doesn't, Todd Simon. does the deconvolution, so yeah. yeah, so yeah, you've got John, Simon, Alex, um, who else is doing maps? Paul. Paul. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. everybody's doing maps, yeah. and yeah. you know, with the deconvolution, you're not sure if what you're seeing is an artifact of deconvolution or a feature on Pluto, so... If you see something in multiple maps, if you see multiple people get it, we say, aha, this is something we're going to talk about. It's, we've verified it's just not a camera thing, which comes up a lot in science. And it's important that also that a lot of what we do um, for a given task, many different people have their different independent set of tools that they use for it. And that's why it's so powerful that when we then all come together, we are able to establish some kind of consensus because we know that we're not repeating the same method that someone else is doing. And that's very much encouraged um, across the four teams, from what I understand. Definitely in our group. Yeah, yeah and yeah. even something as simple as how big is Pluto? Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. we... The fitting business. Right, how we fit it. Because yeah. you were just, you were coming up with another answer today, yeah. and we had three more this morning. Yeah. And we can't discuss specifics. It's... All of you have your own tools, and you're all doing it differently, so yeah. it's a multiple that checks. That makes it stronger. Yeah. A slight change of pace uh, prior to this encounter week where, like everyone said, we've been sitting in a room together. Um, prior to this week, I've been on my own at the University of Arizona. There's not anyone else there that does New Horizons. So I've been working in a gloriously hands-off environment. No one's bother- bothering me. Um, and so I've been concentrating on doing impact simulations so that we can get an idea of what impact craters on Pluto might look like. Uh, We expect them to look like craters on other icy bodies, but the impact velocity in the Pluto system is so low that they might look strange. So I've been trying to get an an idea of what they might look look like. And listeners will remember that the reason that the impact velocity is slow at Pluto is because of one of the primary sponsors of this podcast, uh, Kepler. (laughs) (laughs) It's laws of planetary motion. Uh, Stuff moves slower when you're farther out in the solar system. Um, so just actually curious, maybe going around the room, how many hours do you work per day on average, I guess the last few days, uh, while we've been here at APL? A lot. <laughs> Easily 12 plus. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so like you're here for total maybe six or so, and then you go home, you... Come being home by home by the hotel, (laughs) or you're here for ten hours. (laughs) You eat dinner and then you bring your laptop and you're hanging out with people and you're trying to finish that one thing in time for the science plenary to send it off to your GGI lead. Yeah, or you're trying to render a movie and get it finished before midnight. (laughs) Or you're fixing the tool, fitting models at three in the morning. Or you're responding to emails about which map should we present tomorrow. I, the thing that's been nice is that things have been moving along very quickly, and partly because people are working a lot, but also because we're all in one place. So you're not waiting. It's not that email delay of oh, well, I've contacted that person. I'm waiting to hear back. They're here, so you can 
sort of te- get the get the feedback you need straight away to keep things moving forward. So we have been working long hours, and you can see the product of that every day in those science plenaries. But a big bit of it is just all being in the same place as well, and that really keeps things moving along. Like I was due to arrive on Sunday, and I had was going to be off the previous week, but I was on the week before that, and I went back, and I was like this isn't working and I actually came back early so I could be in contact with everybody and communicate better. Um, One of the other things I can say about the openness is that you know someone finishes a result there's a new image it's deconvolved and it's just on the server for everyone to go grab. Not everyone on the team. (laughs) It's just on the server for everyone on the team to go grab and look at and so we're very open among ourselves. No one is trying to be the one who found this or the one who found that. It's just what we're all doing together. Yeah, a few yeah, of us are giving you the We all yeah, want to yeah, discover yeah. that. Cool. <laughs> well, we all yeah, want yeah, to discover yeah, that right. cool thing, but it's not like, oh, yes, I'm like, you're hogging the data so no one can see what you're doing. You're all just kind of doing stuff it together. Like Carly is, yeah. is really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can go I on can now. be. I we can go on. Yeah, now. I think that's just. <laughs> so so move, moving to the next one. I don't want to say. And this has been hit on by a number of people too but the big contrast I notice is um, we're basically doing like instant group science mm-hmm. which is not how science is done a lot of times a lot of times you do things very slowly and methodically yep. and you sit by yourself in your office and maybe you go talk to someone occasionally and you know as maybe. everyone's been commenting on yeah. there are other people it's totally a different yeah it's yeah, a totally it's a different way of doing setting. science it's an unusual setting it doesn't happen often like yeah this. and yeah. I think that's why it's really helpful to have multiple people doing mm-hmm. multiple tools because you don't have time to do that yourself you need multiple people doing it at the same time and parallel so you get done with everything a lot quicker and in a robust way for example during one of the readiness tests um i accidentally was using sharon's radius instead of pluto's and so everything was scaled off by a factor of two and just independent checks like that or like what's the biggest crater on pluto okay kelsey gets a thousand kilometers i get two thousand kilometers veronica gets fifteen hundred kilometers are we all looking at the same feature and if so why are we mapping it differently and so that why does that crater cover more than a hemisphere of pluto Shh. Stop it. That's a good question, and we'll find that out yes. in episode two of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, so since, since we talked about gigantic craters, um, what is one thing? What what uh, the next question is? What, what's one thing that you're actually hoping to find? Like the one big thing that you think would be really cool. Uh, in the pluto sharon system, not necessarily in your field, but probably in your field, uh, and what observation or observations, plural, are planned to help you make that discovery if it's real? I'll go first, um, just because I've had this idea in the back of my head. I think, and this is not related to my field, it would be really, really cool if we were to discover a ring system. Um, and there are many observations planned as we go in, as well as looking back as we go out, Uh, with multiple instruments to do some very, very deep imaging, meaning very long exposures, to try to find rings. And I think that it would be really cool if we found a ring system because the Pluto-Sharon system itself is dynamically interesting. And it's in a dynamically poorly understood area of the solar system because Pluto and Sharon form a double planetary system and we have at least four other tiny moons. And it would just be really, really interesting, um, I think. Providing so, the bits were very small 
and don't have yes. a spacecraft. Provided that it is spacecraft safe, I think it would be really cool if we found uh, a ring system. Kelsey? Yeah, so I thought of something too. Um, it would be really interesting if we saw evidence of liquid water under the surface of Pluto. Um, or Sharon. Or Karen. Or Sharon. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but uh, ways we might look for that would be the overall shape of the bodies. So if they're not perfectly spherical, if they're slightly squished, for example, um, that could give us indication of what's going on in the interior. Or we may see cool features on the surface, even though it's not liquid water itself, that indicate that there is liquid water there. Or there so for example, of some sort. Or yeah, or yeah, there, the surface, the, there yeah. could be some smooth area that yeah. looked like it was resurfaced by something fairly fluid. Um, or even impact craters, um, as Veronica is very familiar with, as well as other people here. When you look at some of the icy satellites of either Jupiter or Saturn and you compare them, you see craters of the same size look differently. And for example, on Europa, that's thought to be because of the influence of the subsurface ocean there. So there'll be all sorts of fun ways for us to see indirectly um, or more directly if there's liquid water on Pluto. Uh, cantaloupe terrain, if we see yeah. similar things like we see on Triton. It's thought to be from diapirism. That's right, from diapirism. Which is... Solid state convection. Yeah, solid state convection. <laughs> <laughs> that's way it, it, looks, it looks like a lava lamp, actually. Yeah, it looks like yeah. a lava lamp. That's yeah, in, that's if you can see under analogy. the surface. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, although there are other alternative interpretations for uh, the, can uh, the cantaloupe terrain. Could be because of an impact crater uh, uh, liquefying the water on the surface and creating a situation where you have a, a density inversion with the ice below. You have Rayleigh-Taylor type of instabilities, and you can form such patterns as well. So there, there are many also. So if we see another example of such terrain, it would be very, um, you know, it would be an impetus to continue further studies on those lines. <laughs> and and just for thirty second background, cantaloupe terrain was just this weird terrain that looks like the rind of cantaloupe that people that we discovered on Triton, and nobody had expected it. Nobody had seen it before anywhere, and still decades later, we're like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And so we, we kind of have a hint of what we think it might look like. So we've seen, I mean, we've seen objects like it, which Triton is what we imagine Pluto will resemble in some way. We've got images of Ceres. And so we sort of have an idea, I think, in most of our heads as to what the surface is going to look like. The thing that would be really interesting is how it differs from all of those things. And like we discovered the cantaloupe train on Triton, you know, what will Pluto have and, and what will that push us to sort of rethink our models and, and what's that going to tell us? So it's a really lame answer. The thing I'm most excited about is the thing that I can't possibly guess I'm going to be excited about. I, I have a rather strange one that I'm almost hoping to see. It's a very specific type of impact crater. It's called a central pit crater. and our current way of understanding how these things form is that you need um, melt water created by the impact which then kind of drains away. The, uh, the impact velocity in the Pluto system is so low we wouldn't expect much impact melt so if we see a central pit crater it means all of my work for the last 10 years is rubbish. <laughs> but, but it would be a really exciting result because it would show that we really don't understand these things at all and we don't have to stop. That, that wouldn't works. tell you that there's, that there's something that's not understood about the liquid water or the temperature of the subsurface or something like that. It's got, what, what's, what is it about your work that that would prove wrong? Um, the, the idea for why there's a central pit there is that you get enough impact meltwater contained 
in the centre of the crater, which can then drain away. Yeah, no, I um, understand that. Yeah, but that so that's what your work is oh. showing. Yes. Are there some there's some regimes in which the surface could give you that sort of crater, and and still form. But your your theory of how they form not be wrong, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, maybe that's a really think of power theory is not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's kind of a weird well, question. The one thing I I hopefully see is or are geysers like we saw on Triton. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we saw yeah. what like six yeah. geysers on yeah. Triton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, pretty po- poor resolution. New Horizons will will beat that. So anyway, I hope we see that. And <laughs> besides this, I would like to see actual like cryovolcanoes like we see on Enceladus. That would that would blow me out of the water. I don't want to see cryovolcanoes on Enceladus. I was like, am I missing something? I mean, Triton has the best evidence for cryovolcanoes. Right, but I mean active, like like Enceladus is today. Something so you mean you mean like endogenic activity? I don't expect cryovolcanoes. Triton, it's mostly nitrogen or whatever. It's stuff that would sublimate at Triton temperatures. The water is not. Yeah. And that, while I expect that to be less likely, that would be more exciting. But, so evidence of active geologic processes on the short term. On Pluto or Shared. On Pluto and or Shared. Somewhere in the, in the system. All right. Spider terrain. And the only way we should see that is probably... Um, spider ter- that's the one that we see on Mars, right? Yeah. yeah. With the yeah. CO2. Also, oh, with right. the... But the analog would be uh, the methane... Yeah. The ice. Okay. Yeah. The plumes on Triton are thought to be from a similar mechanism. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Um, so let's move on to uh, a fast question, um, and I think this one's going to be from Kelsey. Uh, Kelsey's going to have to answer this one. This is a related science planning question from listener Rick. He wanted to know how are we planning to look for clouds? Um, and again, remembering that we can't discuss possible results in the podcast, but. Uh, to be fair, we don't have any results yet for this, so <laughs> we can't discuss them. Uh, so how are we planning to look for clouds? Um, what observations and what? how would we interpret those to say, yes, there are clouds? Right, so that's a great question. Um, and actually... Sucking up the listeners already. That <laughs> <laughs> is a good question. No. Um, Jason actually could probably chime in here as well, but... Um, there's a number of observations planned. Um, we don't know if we're going to see any clouds. If we did, they would be methane condensation, most likely. There's also the possibility for hazes, which is technically different, and it's if you have um, particles. Uh, and so those could be different, slightly different things that we're looking for, but there's a couple of ways we're going to do that. Um, one is by just directly looking at the disk of Pluto. If we see something that looks like it's moving and it has a shadow, <laughs> that could be a cloud. Or haze, um, although clouds tend to be more distinct, and, and hazes are, we might not show up as a distinct feature on um, with a shadow. So clouds would be gas, haze would be particles, particles well, like it's condensed dust. The cloud still has condensed material. So, so how are you, what, what is the distinction? Because clearly, even some of us have no idea what the distinction is between a cloud and a haze. So I'm just learning all this. <laughs> but my impression is a cloud is condensed ices onto some kind of uh, dust particles. Yeah, yeah. and Nuclear the haze would be just the dust. Yes. Okay. So, anyways, like you see pollution on Earth, yeah. that would be an example of a haze, um, because it's not a condensed gas. It's not water frozen onto particles. It's just the particles itself. Um, or like a sandstorm could be a haze, sort of, with really big particles. <laughs> I wouldn't call it that, but I wouldn't know. So okay, <laughs> yeah, so Mars, 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 Mars
Okay. Maybe it's, maybe it's like soils, you know, there's different gradients based on Regolith. particle size. So, mm-hmm. uh, soils on Earth is actually what I was thinking of. But anyways. Anyway, so clouds. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the, another way that we will look for clouds is actually looking along to the um, edge of Pluto and looking just off the edge um, and seeing if we see anything off the edge of Pluto. Um, and so we'll also we'll do that on the way in and we'll do that looking back and trying to see if we see any sunlight that's blocked out by any of these particles. And interjecting real quickly, because um, this is the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast and I deal a lot on this podcast with people who have no idea how to interpret images or overinterpret images. This is a case where we have to know every single quirk about the instrument and the detector and even Pluto scattered light and everything because if we are going to claim that we see a cloud above the disk of Pluto, we have to be darn sure that it's not some sort of image artifact or even a compression artifact because that's an issue is we're going to be dealing with a lot of lossy compressed day to day of exact understanding that exactly and understanding if if a fall-off that we see in something is because of the, the instrument or scattered light or if it's an Good point. for planning purposes, not actual science results yet. Uh, so we're not talking about the atmosphere. Let me ask you a question. So what would be the, the particles comprising the... The haze? Yeah. What are the, some of the things that are being discussed as possibilities? Um, so I've heard of, I've heard like photochemical products from the, gen, like from stuff hitting the methane on the surface could become haze particles, but I don't know what else. That's the one I've heard of. Yeah. No, that's what I've heard. Like, okay. you give a 15... Hydrocarbons gunk that, that happens to... Be. Can you give a 30-second description of what that means? So, so, the, so the surface is comprised of methane, and that, that we know. And so what happens is sunlight, particularly UV um, light, comes in and it hits that. And it's got enough energy that it can break these things apart. These whole molecules can be broken apart. And they can recombine to form other things. So a bit like you put, you put gas in your car and you end up with hydrocarbons that come out the back. It's a little bit like that, but instead of having an engine, you have sunlight. And so sunlight's the engine in this analogy. And so that... that and so that, that gunk, that, that the, the back of your tailpipe, comes up and it, it's held in the atmosphere for a short while. And that's, and that's what can go on to form these hazes. And then if, if liquid, uh, if, if ice forms around those particles, that's what forms clouds. So that's kind of the basis of things above the surface. Uh, so the final question is a broad one that could also take a while. Um, what is it like for you, y'all? to be on the New Horizons team? And I realize that that's an incredibly open-ended question, so I'm gonna focus it a little bit better for you. Um, a lot of news outlets are going to have interviews with some of the higher-ups in the team, like Alan Stern and Kathy Olkin and Leslie Young and all the, the theme team leads and all these people in the next week or two. And these people um, have perspectives from like pioneer days even, but more Voyager and uh, even more recent outer solar system missions. So I know that actually most of you, except for me, uh, have worked on other missions, but this is really sort of the last one to the last of the classical planets, uh, the first one to the third region of the solar system. Is it exciting? (laughs) Is it kind of -of run-of-the-mill science discovery, like a normal day of science discovery, and you're giving me weird looks, and I, so I, I know what the answer is going to be <laughs> that part, but you know, have you been involved in anything that's like this? You know, how does it compare to other missions? What's the general vibe, to use the common parlance? Um, and how do you think you might look back at this in 30 years compared with some of the other 
science missions and other things that you've been involved in. And perhaps someone who's been on the most missions, I th- Carly or Veronica, should start answering that. Veronica, so, why don't you start off with answering that? So I, I've been on the science team for a, a couple of missions, and it feels very similar. So this is, you know, it's a good camaraderie, everyone's working together, and the excitement prior to getting there is like it was for Elrock and um, but I'm also on the operations side of the high-rise camera um, that's taking photos of Mars and it's an orbiter, well sorry high-rise is on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter so it's orbiting Mars and every now and again something will happen that will make the spacecraft safe and then we go through this arduous two-week process where we need to work out what caused the the safing event so the spacecraft would turn itself off to preserve itself um, and then we need to turn on the instruments one by one and it's it's stressful but it isn't a flyby level stressful like the safing event recently that that was <laughs> incredibly high stress relative to you've got an orbiter in place and who cares if you miss two weeks worth of observations so for people who, who didn't get the news uh or weren't paying attention, I guess, over the weekend, the Horizons went into safe mode just less than two weeks out from closest approach, and it was a, it was a little heart-pounding moment <laughs> for many, many people. Carly? Um, so I've not worked on anything that's really been a flyby, um, just like Veronica was saying. Most of the missions that we do have a longer duration. Um, I've been working on Cassini since 2005, so um, sort of going back to what Veronica was saying, with Cassini it's a little bit different because we're, we're orbiting Saturn and I'm interested in icy satellites and so you kind of do have these sort of flyby type geometries but you can usually go back and get a second look um, you have other opportunities it gives you different geometries uh, and, and so forth and so and so there's not that sort of urgency that you get with a flyby mission. Like if we don't get a particular observation, that's it. We don't get it. It's gone. That moment, that moment in time and space is gone. So the the urgency and the stress, I think, is is ramped up accordingly. That that makes it more exciting, which is, um, I think, good. But um, you're also very aware that this is a one a one time event, and that you have to kind of savor every moment and every observation because that's all you're going to be getting. Next. <laughs> you sounded like Doctor Who. That moment in time and space. <laughs> I've never been on a mission before, so for me, this is uh, this is just totally cool <laughs> in every respect, and it's a dream come true as as well. Um, for many years, I had drifted out of the planetary science world. Anyways, I was doing other things, so to find myself uh, invited onto this team was just quite amazing. And, uh, it, I feel like a kind of babe in the woods with all these cool things going on all around me. So it's it's been very amazing. I've I've been learning new things every step along the way, um, and uh, and it's just uh, yeah. I mean, it's the sort of thing I wanted to do since I was a little kid, and and here I am. And I'm around really um, wonderful people. That's right, you are. And who's paying? Especially Carly. Yeah. <laughs> Who paid you to say that? <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> in in, uh, in Christmas. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'll, I'll jump in because I'm like you. I was never really working on New Horizons. I was sort of brought in as a 25% time to help Leslie Young, who was the PEP lead, the Pluto Encounter Planning lead. So I was really doing 
mission planning stuff, and it was supposed to be a March 2012 through August 2012 thing, <laughs> and then I guess Leslie decided that, hey, I can farm off a lot of this busy work to Stuart, and I don't have to worry about it. So she just kept me on, and then they brought me on as a Swery employee, and then Leslie went to Jeff and said, hey, Jeff, Stuart's been keeping me sane for the last three years. I- I'd like to make Stuart happy after Encounter, so because we won't be planning anymore, <laughs> we'll have done it. So maybe um, you know, he can be on the geology team, and Jeff's like, sure, why not? What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, and I'm so the I fastest think, crater counter in the West. <laughs> yeah, so and he is, he is, by the way. <laughs> so I said I would do craters. Um, I, I do craters, and Jeff said, good. You report to Kelsey. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, so to, um, to answer an earlier question, you have an overlord. I do. Oh yes, yes. I Kelsey. do have an overlord. Kelsey is my overlord. Yeah, I'm not sure. I consider it that way, but whatever he says to her. <laughs> she just uh, why, haven't, <laughs> why haven't you sent him to Whole Foods to buy mochi ice cream? Which is your you know, good idea. Why don't I think I'm that. not your minion. You're my overlord. There's a difference. <laughs> I see a playlist for the movie. It looked very similar. <laughs> seen minion. Anyway, um, yeah. So. So I was sort of, I almost came in through a back door almost in the sense of planning to making people happy and showing that, hey, I can do stuff. And I've been trying to worm myself into the graphics people too, saying, hey, I can do movies and animations. And so for me, it's, it's really cool. Um, it's also, it shows that networking is important regardless of what field you go into, which really sucks because I hate networking, but <laughs> I do. I'm willing to say that. So, so, and but, I won't take it out. <laughs> but I think that I think what you're talking about is very true. I mean, these missions, especially Pluto, the ones of Pluto, but most of them have a ramp up time. This one had nine years of getting there, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff that is very important, like calibration. But it's never going to be the the image that makes the New York Times. Like, and but without that work, the image wouldn't be on the front of the New York Times. And so a lot of people get into it that way. You sort of pay your dues. You do the calibrations. You do the whatevers. And you do the Pluto planning, you do the observation planning, or, or sequencing, whatever it is um, that goes into it. And I think it's it's a way that lots of people get involved with missions, and, and it's really nice to see them through and be able to experience the encounter if you've done all that grunt work in the back, because it's like everything's finally paying off. It's so There are three grunts left to hear from. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's somewhat surreal, and just, you know, when you... You know, like I guess Carly and Veronica, these this is not their first mission, um, but on the outside, it's like, oh yeah, no, I, I work on NASA's New Horizons mission. We're flying by Pluto, and part of me is like, if you told my twelve-year-old self what I would do when I grew up, I would just flat out not believe this at all. And it's been really neat to just get a front row seat to be on the inside for all of the stuff that's been going on and just see what's goes on behind closed doors everyone like you know it's like what is this like and it's and that's what, why i'm asking it it's, it's, <laughs> you know it's, it's what is it like uh. <laughs> well you think of that i just want to say it's also kind of neat for me to see some of the older people mm. um sorry the more experienced and senior <laughs> scientists um to They're see older come on <laughs> they are they have to be older to be more anyway uh, <laughs> the more senior and experienced scientists to see some of their excitement because you you would almost expect them to be almost jaded by this point and it's just like they're some of them are almost reliving the glory days of voyager and seeing this stuff for the first time and they're like and it's almost like they're picking up 
from where they left off, especially with the, in GGI, we have a gigantic base map of Triton up on the wall, and they're actively comparing it to Triton because one of the more likely potential formation scenarios of Pluto is that it and Triton were a pair at, at some point, and Triton got captured by Neptune, and Pluto went off into uh, a Neptune resonance, 3 to 2 resonance. And it's really kind of cool to see that, but by the same token, none of us really has we don't have that kind of view and my, my listeners aren't going to be getting really our view from NASA next week. They're not going to be getting that from other outlets because they don't interview the grunts. I think it's important to take a step back and pause from your busy work. That's the I think we're all very busy with what we're doing and so we need to pause and actually realise how big this thing is that we're involved with and it actually takes conscious thought on my part like I I stop doing what I'm doing and then realize this is it we're nearly at Pluto and I found it interesting that Amanda said her 12 year old self wouldn't have um, wouldn't have believed her my six-year-old self I told my aunt that I would work for NASA and I pictured I didn't know what a planetary scientist was called but I pictured standing in mission control as an image of a a planetary body that we've never seen before came down mm-hmm. and I've got a picture of myself at my six year old birthday with me in mission control now because this is <laughs> this is what I've been working for since I was six so you're fulfilling your childhood dream yes mm-hmm. I think that's unique among the seven of us in this room well I, I mean I wouldn't well, necessarily like, no okay I wouldn't say it that way <laughs> okay I wouldn't it is a dream come it's true, true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It is I wouldn't come true. true no matter when you had the dream yeah. yes it's what I meant dream. was, <laughs> specifically yeah, when we that. were six. Okay, so um, you, you actually dreamed of this. Or I <laughs> dreamed of being part of, uh, being part of going out to the edge of wherever really? man or human has gone. And I always wanted to be there, and here I am. And it's See, I thought I was going to be an electrical cool. engineer. Yeah. <laughs> I really I didn't I didn't decide to do astronomy until I was a senior in high school and I didn't decide planetary science until I was a senior in college. So I always knew science. I knew science. Yeah, I knew I'm pretty science. similar to you. And, and I'm specific so, for astronomy. I'm closer to Stuart. Yeah. So, so, so I mean that's why it's interesting to hear that. So when I, I was watched those voyages live link downloads. I was three. <laughs> it was voyager. Yeah, it was. Uh, Uranus Uranus when I was five, five. Neptune when I was eight, yeah. and it was just like, wow, they're different colors. Why? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. I I grew up just outside London. Um, my mum's was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad was an electrician, and so we didn't do. I didn't do things like space camp because they didn't exist in my world. But my mum was always really good. Like so, so one of my earliest memories was under the table. We made it into a, a space a spaceship, and we had buttons under the table that we'd stuff on it. And I'd make my little sister dress up as the alien. She was always the alien. <laughs> <laughs> my little sister still probably hates you. No, yeah, and I had silver shoes because that's what space people wore. And that was the game like we spent my entire childhood playing. And as an adult, like okay, I've figured out not everyone can be an astronaut, but it's still pretty cool to sort of. You know, that was all about exploring new worlds, and this is a way of doing that. Okay, I still, I still need, I need to buy silver shoes. <laughs> but other than that, it's very silver. There's a mall across the street from the hotel. Yeah. My brother actually yeah. made up the story that he was the king of Jupiter. 
And he was, and his people sent him to Earth because the Great Red Spot was killing all his people. So that was actually my college application essay (laughs) about how my brother was the king of (laughs) Jupiter. But that was (laughs) so two people left. So what's it like for you, perspective? What what would you tell your six-year-old self? What would you tell your sixty-year-old self? um, Well, I would say to my twelve, my eleven-year-old self that I finally made it here. <laughs> I, I mean, I was 11 when Voyager did the Neptune flyby, and it wasn't too long after that I started reading about missions to Pluto. And I started saying, that would be really cool. I didn't say, think I'd be on it. I didn't, I, but I, was like, I knew Pluto was going to be the next thing. And um, I think it was 94. Next, 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 thing. 94 when we made the, the, the collision with Jupiter, the Shoemaker-Levy with Jupiter. Um, the internet was just coming together as far as like regular people go. You know, th- those images from Hubble and from around the world were just coming through like almost instantaneously. That just captivated me. And I, and I knew then I was going to do astronomy. 14 uh, kilobytes per second. Yeah, and then... Kilobytes. Yeah. So then, you know, go through college. I, I, that's where I met Leslie. Um, I basically have known her for 18 years now. Uh, she's the one who put me on the path to Pluto. Uh, with low signal-to-noise data, just like pick your photon and, and uh, name it or some, some sort of thing like that. Um, but I, you know, I stuck with it. I uh, got through grad school somehow. <laughs> but uh, I, I got to go to the launch, and uh, I didn't miss it because I did not fly Southwest. <laughs> Plug for Southwest. <laughs> but weather delayed, and I had to go home. But I, did, I, did, I was there for all the parties and all that. That was, that was fun, but nine and a half years later to still be with this mission is uh, uh, certainly a dream come true. Um, I've added uh, work on LAMP, which is the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter um, UV spectrometer. Uh, UV is completely different from what I do. I do I, I'm normally happy in the infrared realm. Um, it's just light. Yeah, it's, it's just light, but it's a, it's a, different, uh, a, a different it's a different beast. Different completely different detector technology. Yes, it is. And, and I got a bit of a lesson from Eric on that one. Like, oh, okay, it's different. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, the, 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 the camaraderie, camaraderie is very similar. But what's different is that we are a flyby. The intensity is all focused on the 14th, although I think all of us in the room and all those, all those outside the room here know that the data's been coming down for a year plus. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun for the next few days, but when we go back home to our institutions, the data will just keep going, <laughs> and we'll have more fun, and we'll have science team meetings, and we'll talk about it, and uh, it'll all trickle out to the public. It'll be a very long day more. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I hope that after this mission's over, or after the flyby, that we start talking about going back to Neptune and Uranus, because they also need orbiters, and as well as Pluto is going to need one, as far yeah, as I'm concerned. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. We need to be part of it pushing that forward in the future. Well, and we are the next generation. Don't forget that we're, uh, after Pluto, people say, well, why not an orbiter? Because we're going to the Kuiper Belt. That's right. Well, well, we yeah. hope to go to the Kuiper Belt. Not because it costs so much money. Well, we, well, we, we are, 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 are going. Well, we all going, whether yeah. we get to observe it. Yeah, we are the Kuiper Belt, whether her camera is taking pictures or not. Right. But we are hoping to have an extended mission uh, after the Pluto flyby, and this would be the end of 2018, early 2019, and we'll be deciding between two potential Kuiper Belt targets. They're both in opposite directions, so we can only burn toward one, and we're hoping to announce and make that burn in the fall. 
the burn will be made regardless yeah. because we have to do it right. this right. fall. And but we, we have, have to pick a burn. Pick we a have burn. to pick a burn. Yeah. We have to make the burn. We have to write the proposal for the extended and mission, and we're going Congress to fund it. Right. We well, we're going to the Kuiper Belt. As Carly said, the question is, will the mission actually be operational at that yeah. time? Um, so with that said, there's one person left in terms of the perspectives. Well, yeah, so I, uh, not to be cliche, but it is really just a dream come true. I think planetary scientists, there's no like set path for any of us, um, but I think we would just all agree this is pretty much the coolest job, um, and we're all very lucky to be involved. And that's all That I'll was say. short. What would you tell your, your uh, <laughs> current self when you're 60? What would I, what, that I was lucky to be involved in such an awesome thing? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, so you've been involved on, a few, on at least one other uh, mission. Rock, but so the yeah, Lunar after Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera. There. Yeah, okay. so I was involved in the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Camera, um, but after it had already arrived at the moon, um, and so it was more in the analyzing images, making um, products like topography out of them, and doing science with it. Um, so it's a little different than what we're experiencing now. Um, but again, as Veronica was saying, it's just really an interesting group of people that come together and make stuff happen. So at least for me, it's actually interesting to hear most of you say that this is very similar to other missions, other instrument teams, in the sense of sort of the, the atmosphere of the people. Where it differs is that this is a flyby, and that this is the we have never been there before, as opposed to just to pick on you because you were the last one, Elrock with the moon, we've been there before. Granted, we can still do a hell of a lot more science and we should keep funding missions to the moon, but we've been there before, so it's almost... Uh, it's not a first look. Right, whereas this is high intensity. This is we're history. zooming past. This is history. Well, it will yes, be historical. It does, it does feel <laughs> it's very historical. It's really neat to historical. see... Um, when data come in and someone says, you know, the, the new map has been emailed out to everybody, and everybody on the team, everybody on the team, yes. Sorry. When the new map, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but but yeah. like, then prepare for sorry, quick right. public release in the day or two following. That's right. Yes, um, but the an email goes out to the team. Todd Lauer's got a new deconvolution. Gets emailed out to the entire team to see the old timers like Paul and Bill come around and be flabbergasted about what they're seeing and it's funny because um, we passed around a pool of predictions before the flyby and people said that it would render scientists speechless and to some degree that's happened. Yeah. Well, and so it's actually, it's interesting that you're focusing on that as the reaction for me, maybe because of this podcast and blog and other things that I do. I'm more focused on the, they're so careful about whether or not these features are real. During the, the plenaries last week, the questions or the statements were, we have now seen this in multiple rotations and even though we're doing these deconvolutions to try to bring out more information from, from what we're seeing, because the feature is consistent across multiple rotations and multiple images, we're pretty sure it's real now as opposed to an artifact of the processing. And so this kind of, this, the, the stuff that I've been talking about here is about how scientists are very careful as opposed to pseudoscience, just look at any image anomaly and say it's aliens, really impressed me. We will ooh and ah out loud though. Oh yeah, we'll still ooh and ah, but it's and like... And say, what's this? What's this? Oh no, this, you know, for what we... 
Is that sort of feature real? Yes. Kind of so when we, we write something up and we prepare the press release, um, it's is funny because our, our science is being done by press release, if you will, um, for the flyby because <laughs> people want to know, you know, what's happening, what did we see, but generally, you know, you see images, you write up what you've seen, and you send them off to the journal, and two other scientists look at them, make comments, say, have you tried this, this, that, and that, and oh, by the way, your grammar sucks. Um, and then you deal with that, and that whole process takes like a year and a half, and so we don't have the year and a half. We have everybody staring down our throats. We're doing our work, and we're having the photographer come up behind us or shut off the lights because he wants to get a better shot, and we're like, hey, we can't see. And I'll just clarify, by science, by press release, I mean, we're doing science, and the next day the press release goes out, as opposed to, uh, and it's vetted by the entire team, as opposed to something like Pons and Fleischmann's science by press release of, hey, we invented cold fusion, we haven't told anyone or vetted this with anyone else, but we're going to announce it by a press release. But right. to some degree, that is what's happening. I mean, the, our press releases aren't being peer-reviewed outside of the program. True, they're not being peer-reviewed outside the program, but it's much but more than one program, or two people. Right. Within the program, we have a hundred scientists here. I agree. With a lot of different disciplines. Yeah. Different perspectives. And different perspectives yeah. and multiple tools as opposed to... If you want to be cynical, it's not being reviewed outside the team. Well, I don't want to be cynical, but I want to be more precise. Well, that's different than one person saying, hey, yes, by the way, right. I did something. Right. Yes. Because <laughs> I agree. It's a good with that. Which is more that's what the more listeners are familiar with. The paper review with. process yeah. okay. goes through. Right. As opposed yeah, to... A hundred scientists don't look at every paper. Right. True. And 100 scientists aren't looking at we do, but I would say it's more like five, six, with multiple people doing the image processing in parallel, doing yeah. the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. Your paper did go to press releases, as did some of mine. Your Pac-Man, what was it, the sauce, Pac-Man eats the Death Star? Pac-Man on Death Star. How many press releases were there about that? But it was and how many it. scientists reviewed it? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, so it's Carly. It's her famous paper, duh. Carly's famous paper. The Pac-Man needs the so, best star. So I wrote a paper. It got peer-reviewed, and it was about to come out. And it went to the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory's press people, ahead of the, the release. And they took the paper and realized that Mimus, one of the moons of Saturn, looks a lot like the Death Star. And because of the way um, we'd, we'd made maps of the anomaly, and it, because it's a thermal anomaly, we'd made them using a sort of hot-cold colour scheme. So hot's red, cold is kind of yellow and blue. Um, and the anomaly is a very sharp boundary, and with the globe projection, like it looked like Pac-Man. I remember that now. Yeah. <laughs> Pac-Man is the Death Star. So my, my press release that was a very sensible press release got turned into Pac-Man on Death Star. Oh, <laughs> and in one way, it was hideous, because as a scientist, when you see that come out, you think, oh no, my parents are going to, my family is going to be buying Pac-Man oh, no. until I die. <laughs> which, which happened. On the flip side, it made the front page of the BBC World <laughs> News. So, like, you're like, oh, okay, thank you, JPL Press Office. <laughs> and so, so listeners are prepared, actually, um, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be interviewing the press people. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna actually see you guys. Now. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be asking them how they turn what we give them into something for public consumption, because something in skepticism that so many of us are familiar with is we have a perfectly sensible science thing, and then it just gets morphed by the press people, 
And so we actually, for New Horizons, and I don't know if this is unique for New Horizons. It is. The science article on Allen says that it's something that nobody has ever done where they have hired um, four, I think, journalists, and they are sitting down with us and, you know, making their products aside from us, and they see us talking like, oh, hey, what's this, what's that? They're just, you know, and if they have questions, we can come back and explain things to them. Because science journalism is very funny in this way where, as a scientist, if someone writes something about you, say another scientist, and they might show it back and say, hey, what do you think? And you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you might explain this better. Oh, oh, this little thing was wrong, blah, 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 blah. But a journalist, they interview politicians. You don't want them sending it back to the politician and them saying, no, no, it's like this. (laughs) That's obviously, and so, you know, to them, we're just another person, whether it's a politician or a scientist, but we're just trying to explain things better where a politician might be trying to spin things or con con someone or... Well, hold on a minute. That's a bit, that's a bit harsh. Or do what, you know, try to make themselves look better and we're just trying to... We don't do that at all. Help people understand better. And the other thing is that what we're trying to say is hard and complicated sometimes. And so getting that second look or... um, And... To be honest, as a scientist, it doesn't mean that I am qualified to work on other people's science. It means I'm qualified to work on my own stuff. Take yourself right now and what you know about your specific field and compare that to what you knew about your field five years ago. Oh, God. Or even ten years ago. That's you with every other field of science. And yet, as scientists, a lot of us, not necessarily us, a lot of them feel comfortable as if they can comment like hey I'm smart I'm a scientist I can comment on this thing completely outside my field and but that, that's like anyway so right. but exactly what you were saying so we have embedded journalists right and, and it's so unique to this from, mission you know so as a scientist not being qualified to really talk about other people's science I'm only qualified to talk about the stuff that I work on I know I might know a little bit about what other people do but as a journalist, you know, they're, they're coming from the, the other person level and you don't know how much they understand what's going on because it's a lot of complicated stuff. There's a lot of math involved. There's a lot of subtleties and a lot of education that you sort of go through to know what you know. And like looking back five, even myself five years ago, I just know so much more. And I, I've definitely said things like when I've asked questions when I first got exposed to stuff that... I hear those questions again, and I'm like, oh, God, that's just such a terrible, uh, not terrible question, but a question that, you know, the person really doesn't understand what's going on, but yet I've asked that question years back, and so you wonder, like, how well can this person explain what you're doing? How, how much do they know? Um, and they might miss the point of what you're trying to get at, and scientists aren't the best at explaining things all the time, but actually people really do work hard at that and do a good job. Um, but so now we've got these people who are, working with us all the time you know they're not they're they're on deadlines but they've been immersed in this in a way that a reporter who is trying to cover all aspects of science really can't do and and they get to know us and they get to know the jargon and that's and i think the jargon is it's a really big the jargon and seeing the uncertainty with which with what's real and what's not because a lot of them would pick up an image and be like oh yeah sure why 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 isn't that real (laughs) and so 
tomorrow uh, morning, hopefully, I'm going to be interviewing them mm -hmm. and on how they work with us and how they convert this into public consumption because we right. say something and then they turn it into something else and we need this back and forth and I think that that's right. really good for this and, kind of thing. But they also know what confuses people. It's like... Right. I, I, and that's why there's a back I can snowboard barely and I've been told that if you want to learn to snowboard or ice skate, the best person to teach you how to do it is someone who just learned. Yes. It's like Be swallowing a pill. Right. Or a stick shift. Right, because it's muscle memory, and you don't think about these things. But someone who learned, like, okay, I could do this until... Sorry. Someone who said, I couldn't do this until yesterday, but then I realized I needed to put my weight more into it, like, right at this foot, and it's still a conscious thing. But, you know, you ask them six months later, and they're like, yeah, you just go backwards. Yeah. So uh, just one more point on that is I'm really glad that the people, the journalists that they brought in, cover a range of... Both there's a male and female perspective, and there's also an age range because I think different people get their news and they understand things in different ways. And I, I'm glad that the project has kind of understood that. And from anything from like one one minute on Pluto shorts, you know, that are on YouTube, and then there's sort of the more to the more sort of standard way we we think about press as being sort of the written the written word in, either in newspapers or in you know press releases or in articles or whatever. So I, I think that's something that's that's not lost on me is that they're getting the word out, but they're getting it out in a way that kind of different people from different backgrounds will enable that they can kind of react to and, and meet. So and I think that's that's a, a good way to uh, to wrap this up. Um, we are well over an hour, although I don't know what the edited version will be like. <laughs> um, There's a lot of... Yeah. Um, I just, are there any closing remarks by anyone? Um, you know, we're, as I said, we're a week out from closest approach. Uh, in a week, I expect uh, we'll be at press releases and otherwise working. But um, yay, yeah. new horizons! I was going to say, <laughs> Carla said, you know, we're, we've got journalists of different ages, and they're trying to target everyone. This mission really is for all of the people of not only the United States, who are the taxpayers footing the bill, but the world, really, to enjoy and see and answer that question of what Pluto's like. Like we're doing this for humanity. Well, thank, thank you all. Um, thanks for sitting in. And, uh, thanks for it. That was fun. Right, that's it. Thank you very much again to, in no particular order, Kelsey, Veronica, Amanda, Orkon, Jason, and Carly for sitting down for over an hour, uh, and it took quite a while to plan as well, to talk about all of this stuff. Um, I learned a lot, even though I work with these people almost every day, uh, and I hope that you did too. I did want to say that towards the end of the roundtable discussion, we talked about the interview that I was about to do the next day with the Embedded Science Journalists. That was posted as episode 136 of this podcast. In hindsight, I think that it's interesting to see how opposite the two sides were in approaching how to communicate science with the other part, either journalists with the scientists or scientists with the journalists. I'm not really sure if there's a good solution for that, because we should all be kind of on the same side. Um, it, it seems like it's sort of a trust issue where scientists and maybe, I, I'm, I feel this way anyway, scientists have been burned by journalists in the past, and by the same token, I think that journalists always kind of feel that scientists don't necessarily want to talk to them, that they're just sort of, hey, you know, let me do my own stuff, you go do what you do, I do what I do. 
at least that's sort of the impression that I get. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this, and when I say that this is the impression that I get, I in no way mean to impugn my own views on uh, my panelists. So anyway, uh, that's it for this longer episode. Again, my sincere apologies to my colleagues as well as to the listeners for taking so long to get this episode out, but I do hope that it was at least somewhat worth the wait. And, uh, for fairness sake, it took less than 5% the time to get this episode out as it took for New Horizons to get to Pluto once it was launched. Finally, as a last reminder, after uh, the minute or so of outro music that will follow this, and of course the information on how you can get in touch with the show, there is a little over three minutes of outtakes. Uh, These outtakes, just so you're forewarned, are not necessarily rated G. That wraps up this interview for the 143rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on my blog post for this episode, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can tweet me at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Finally, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast, website, or service of choice. If you liked it, then tell friends and family, and also a couple random people that you'll never meet in real life. Right. I just wanted to know if they were, if it was a real person who asked that. <clears throat> yes, so Rick okay. is a real, I can show you the Facebook page. That's all good. No, Robert's a real person, Rick is a real person, I, I assume. They're catfishing you, Stuart. During one of the readiness tests, Kelsey accidentally forgot to multiply by two, so she was getting diameter instead of radius. Hey, you've been telling this story all week, so I can tell Yeah, but not on radio. <laughs> what? Not on radio. <laughs> That can go in the outtake. That can go in the outtake. Kelsey's awesome. She is awesome. That's the point. So, okay. So, we all make mistakes. It's all okay. Come on. So, what's one thing that you're actually hoping to find? Like, the one big thing that you think would be really cool uh, in the Pluto Sharon system? Not necessarily in your field, but probably in your field. Uh, and what observation or observations, plural, are planned to help you make that discovery if it's real? Aliens. <laughs> was that not the answer you were like, no. This is a counter. How would that be? A counter of pseudoscience. I think the outtakes in there are going to be very <laughs> Do the conspiracy theorists listen to your podcast, though? No, they run away. Art Bell runs away. They don't want to call you up and convince you? or Art Bell goes back on the air July 20th. Good lord, he's retired how many times I got? Four or five. Anyway, uh, so yeah. What back, back to the outtakes. Person, so I think they stay away. Um, this is I've, always a hard question. I've been threatened by lawsuits. It's, it's a really hard question. Yeah, so, okay, well, who... Okay, we want to see plumes and actors.
Todd Lauer's got a new deconvolution, and you see the old timers like, "Ooh, what's this? Wow! I wow! Wow!" Mm. You know, they're just <laughs> reacting they to it. it. <laughs> 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 now you made a weird general noise. <laughs> so that's getting this is not a radio. I, I, I believe it's nerdgasm. <laughs> 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 that's getting in the other. <laughs> I, 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 I think too much. Uh, but yeah, just start over. 